always a pleasure to be with you together as we open God's Word. Uh, We are in the book of Hebrews. We've been working our way through this, which is one of the earliest uh, Christian sermons that we have recorded. The book of Hebrews is a sermon that's been written down. It was, uh, they didn't have podcasts or uh, CDs or videos or anything like that. And so um, this sermon was uh, transcribed and then sent to a church, uh, most likely in Rome, uh, where persecution had broken out, where people were really struggling uh, with uh, just the cost of being a Christian. And you had Many people in this small church trying to decide if this thing, this Jesus stuff was worth it. If they were going to continue in uh, this, in following Jesus, or whether they were going to go back to Judaism, go back to continuing to offer sacrifices. Uh, Many of them asking questions, is God really for me if all this bad stuff is happening to me? Where is God when my house has been confiscated, when my business has been bankrupted, when my people I love, when people in my church have been brutally murdered? Where is God in all of this suffering? Some of them ultimately deciding there is no God because, or Jesus Christ is not who he said he is, and they left the church. We are in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 12. Actually, we'll start at verse 11. I'm going to add two verses just so that we don't have to add them later. Uh, Starting at verse 11, Hebrews 6, starting at verse 11, we'll read to the end of the chapter where the Bible says this. It says, We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Verse 12, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. You see, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus forbid it that I would speak about you as if you were not in this room. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you show us your incredible goodness, your incredible strength, your holding power, that no matter what comes in this life, what storms may blow, you are the anchor 
that holds us fast. That when our faith is small, you are the anchor that holds us fast. When our strength is weak, you are the anchor that holds us fast. When we can't hold on to you, you hold us fast. God, teach us. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you guys know that I grew up on the water a lot. That one of the things I've done with my family for about as long as I can remember is fish. I started with cane poles and a little bit of string and uh, bread. We didn't even dig worms because it was too much work. We would just take stale bread, spit on it, put it on a hook, and catch shrimp. And then we would cut their heads off and fry them because that's what every normal family did uh, when I was growing up. Uh, but eventually I learned to work boats. And... Uh, when I was, I guess in 2007, my uncle lost his job, and he did what everybody who gets fired from their job does. He decided he would build a boat in his garage, because he had nothing else to do. It was like kept him from going insane. He just built a boat, a little wooden boat, about 17 feet, 17 feet long, it's a flat bottom, uh, all wood boat that's been fiberglass. And when I moved to Africa, my parents sold my boat uh, without telling me, and so I came back and needed a boat. And my uncle said, sure, you can fish my boat. Um, and so we got on his boat one day, and he's out there with me, and we're out fishing, and we find a great spot um, where the fish are just biting. And he says, hey, Andrew, throw the anchor. And so I reach into the anchor hole, and I grab the anchor, and I check to make sure there's no knots in the lines, and it's not tangled up, and I just, um, and I go to toss it overboard. And I toss it overboard, and the rope it is attached to just disintegrates in midair. It just pops Fiberglass dust everywhere, and the anchor just sinks to the bottom. And I look at it, look at the rope, and then I pull the rope out a little bit. I don't know. I don't know what happened. And he said, Don't worry about it, I have another one. So he reaches into a, a spare compartment, pulls out a second anchor, the backup anchor is a little bit smaller, but it'll still work. And so we tie it off to the rope, ties it off, and then he does it this time. He chucks it, and the anchor gets from about as far from here to the first pew. And again, as soon as any tension hits that line, the anchor line snaps. And the anchor's just gone. And we're looking at it, and so we finally start pulling out this blue rope that is uh, the anchor line. And the anchor line has been chewed to pieces by rats living in the hull of this homemade boat. And so we uh, did what any self-respecting people would do. We tied off to somebody else's dock and ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Today I want to talk about anchors because you see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this incredible verse you might want to memorize in your Bible, a verse that I hope gets tattooed on your heart, gets hidden deep down in your soul. Verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Not like my uncle's anchors where the ropes give way and the anchors pull out, uh, but firm and secure. We have a, this hope as an anchor for the soul. What an incredible verse right there. Anchor for your soul. A soul anchor. Something to keep you safe among the rocks. Something to keep you off the shoals. This is what an anchor does. An anchor holds you in the right place, far enough away from any danger, and there within um, arm's distance of exactly what you want to be. Anchors I use most often for keeping a boat safe during the storms of life, when it's not safe to be moored to anything, when it's not safe to be tied off to a dock where the boat will smash into the dock. Instead, you use an anchor to hold you during the storms of life. 
And here the Bible gives you this image, an anchor for your soul, something to hold you in place when the sea billows roll. When sorrows like sea billows roll, when the storms come, when the waves rise, when the winds blow, something to hold you in place, something to know that you'll never be adrift. Isn't there something inside of you that cries out for a soul anchor? Something you can depend on to keep you off the rocks, to keep you afloat when all else fails, to keep you going when everything is going against you, to keep you uh, afloat and, and secure when everything is trying to get you adrift, when everything seems to let you down. There's something inside of me that just screams for this. Something uh, like what we see in Paul and Silas. Uh, Paul and Silas get arrested and beaten within an inch of their life. They get um, beat within an inch of their life. They're barely alive. They're taken into prison and they're chained. They're in prison. And when they finally come back to consciousness, they are in prison in excruciating pain. They start singing praises to God. Because they have an anchor that holds even when their bodies are wrecked. Something like Job. You remember Job? Job lost everything. At uh, first, uh, he lost all of his crops and all of his livestock. Uh, his cows were stolen. His uh, lambs were killed in a storm. Uh, then his crops go. Then all ten of his children are killed in a horrific uh, architectural failure. All ten of his kids are done. Um, he gets boils all over his skin. His body is... Uh, is rebelling against him. And then his wife says the most helpful thing in the world. She says, your life is so bad, you should curse God and die. But what does Job say? Job, this man says incredible things like, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A man who's lost everything says, the Lord gave it to me and he took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job, who will say in chapter 19, he says, even though he slay me, still I will praise God. Even if he kills me, I will still praise him. Job, who is anchored even when his friends come after him, even when his friends are trying to convince him that God is not trustworthy or that he has done something he knows he has not done. He says, Yet I know this, I will see my Redeemer in the land of the living. Don't you want something inside of you like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were arrested because they refused to practice idolatry. When their country says you have to do this thing or you are not a good person, when you have to bow to this thing or kneel to this thing or raise your right hand to this thing, they say we will not. We will worship God alone. We will not worship anything or anyone other than God. And they are um, brought before trial and they're going to be thrown into the furnace. And you remember what they say to King Nebuchadnezzar? They say, we know that our God can save us. But even if He doesn't, we will worship no one but the Lord. Don't you want that? Something inside of you that can stare into the furnace, that can stare into the powers and say, even, even if God chooses not to save me, still I will praise Him. Even if He takes away everything, still I will praise Him. Even if I'm persecuted and prosecuted, still, he will, still I will praise Him. 
Something like the Apostle Paul uh, recounts in Philippians 4 where he says, I've learned the secret to being content in all circumstances, whether I have enough to eat or whether I go hungry, whether we are comfortable or whether we are living out of doors. I know the secret to contentment. The secret, which is Christ in me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.10 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Don't you want something deep down inside of you, ballast for your soul that keeps you steady when everything else is unsteady? Then you know no matter how big the storm will be, your anchor will hold. Your soul is safe. Your life is secure. Your, ah, that you are okay so that you could say, like Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. There is nothing I am missing. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me and your rod and your staff, they give me comfort. Don't you want something like that? Doesn't your heart long for something like that? You were built for that. And here in Hebrews chapter 6, we see that we have an anchor that holds us in the storm, an anchor that will hold us fast. What is that anchor? Well, verse 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So we have to ask, what is that hope? What is the hope that is firm and secure? You see, last week, I've been preaching straight through this big book of Hebrews, and last week I had to bring you a a difficult, hard lesson uh, that there are those who have tasted and seen that God is good and then walked away, have said, thanks but no thanks, I'll do it my way. And the Bible says in Hebrews 6 verse 4 that it's impossible for those who've been enlightened once to be brought back to repentance after they have uh, walked away from it. And after teaching this stuff, some of you were left doubting the security of your faith, doubting your connection with God, and you're afraid that you have fallen too far, that you've messed up too bad. Some of you were left worrying that your affair or your addiction or your abortion or your sexual assault will disqualify you from God's love or your drunk college nights or your depression or your doubts will disqualify you from connection with God. Because all of those things, many of those things happened after you would have said, I was a Christian and then I made this awful decision. I, I did this terrible thing. Does that mean I can't respond in repentance? I must be disqualified. You see, the problem is, friend, with that kind of thinking is if you, like God doesn't ever have anybody who comes and says, "Ah, Jesus, I love you so much. And he's like, no thanks, I don't need you. If you want Jesus, if you are hungry for his word, if you are are sincerely sorry for what you've done and the pain that's caused Jesus and the pain that's caused others, then that is objective evidence of God's love for you. If you're still worried about whether that thing you did disqualified you, then you're still worried too much about you. You still think that this whole thing is about you, that your salvation is dependent upon how big your faith is, how good your life is, how much you hold up your end of the bargain. The problem is you still think that you've got to be good enough or sorry enough or faithful enough 
That God won't just reject you. You are still trying out for God. And friends, that is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. That is an abominable heresy called moralism. Where you are good and God has to pay you back. But it's dependent upon your goodness. You see, all of our faith, all of our repentance, all of our hope is not grounded in us and our faith is grounded in God's faithfulness, in God's goodness, in God's mercy, in God's promises. Not in the promises I've made to God, but the promises God has made to me. And if I understand those promises, if I understand what God has done on my behalf, I will be grateful. I will be repentant. I will... um, be sanctified, and I will live a good life. But it will be out of gratitude, not out of obligation. It will be out of thankfulness, not out of trying out for God's love. Because it's not about my ability to hold on to God. Think about how foolish that is when it comes to an anchor illustration. When I put the anchor out on my boat, I don't hold it. It's not about my ability to hold the anchor, it's about the anchor's ability to hold me. It's about the anchor's ability to hold the boat. It's why we've been saying for weeks now that Christ will hold me fast. When my faith is small, Christ will hold me fast. It's not about my ability to hold the anchor. It's about the anchor's ability to hold me. And so look what he does. He knows that you are tempted to this. And he says, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. He's saying... This doesn't mean we get to sit back. It means we get to live a life of gratitude and trust. That I get to trust in this anchor and I get to be patient for the storms to pass and wait on what's been promised to me. I cling to the promises even when the reality has not materialized. And so he brings up a person who through faith and patience inherited what had been promised. In verse 13, who's that person? That person is a dude named Abraham. You might have heard of him. He started out as Abram. And then his God changed his name to Abraham. And he gets us these uh, very short verses, 13, 14, 15, about Abraham. It says, When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, He swore by Himself, saying, quote, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. End quote. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham Abraham received what was promised. What was promised. He wants us to wait and inherit what has been promised. He wants us to have the same kind of faith and perseverance that Abraham had. And he brings up this promise, this uh, oath that God makes when he talks to Abraham. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. The author of Hebrews assumes that his audience knows this story forwards and backwards about Abraham. That they know Abraham's whole story, forwards and backwards. But many of us don't, and so we can't make that assumption. And that's okay. Let me tell you about it. Because Abraham is, in a sense, the first faithful one. Genesis 15 will say that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But God makes him promises. And the promises go beyond, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. We have to ask, what has God promised to Abraham? Because we are heirs of the same promise according to this passage. We have inherited what Abraham was promised. And so what was promised? The first thing we see in verse 14, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely bless you. How does God want to bless Abraham? What is the blessing that God has for Abraham? Well, if you turn to Genesis chapter 12, let me show you what God promises Abraham, what he chooses to bless him with. 
Genesis chapter 12, verses uh, 1 to 3. Something you should just remember where it is in your Bible. This is an important part in the Bible because what has happened in the Bible up to this moment is all pretty much bad. God creates a good world. Human beings in relationship with God. Human beings saying no thanks. And they rebel against God. And then from Adam and Eve uh, through the flood, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. We see um, all kinds of things until in Genesis chapter 11, you see a humanity as a whole figured in uh, this country called Babel where they decide to build a tower. Uh, it's, it's as if the entire human race declares independence from God together. Like it's this, as if all human beings on the planet got together and say, let's unilaterally declare independence from the God of the universe. And that happens and God scatters them. And it looks like God should just destroy everything. But instead of destroying everything, God does something absolutely unbelievable. God chooses a man And he says this to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. It says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promises and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So how does God promise to bless him? How does God promise to bless him? What is this blessing? Well, you're going to see over the next few chapters uh, that God gives Abraham all kinds of things. God gives Abraham this exceeding wealth. Abraham has so much um, so his herds are so giant that he cannot share the same territory with another uh, farmer. He has to spread out because his uh, animals take up so much room. He has gold and cows and camels and uh, vast wealth. He has servants beyond belief. And yet is that the blessing that satisfies Abraham's heart? No, Abraham is discontent with his wealth. He has all of this wealth, but he still longs uh, for something greater than that because God has promised uh, to give him a child. And we see um, in Genesis 15 that God comes back to him and and is going to bless him again. Genesis 15, uh, verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And the Lord said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. I am your shield and your very great reward. And Abraham looks back and says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count all the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's got vast wealth and it's not enough to satisfy his soul. It is not enough to anchor him. It is not enough to give him security. And uh, 
And so he asked God for something. He asked God uh, for a child because God's already promised that he's going to make a nation out of him. God's already promised that he'll have, um, that he will be great. And God, so he asked God for this child. And God promises, I'll give you a child. I promise I'll give you a son who will come from your own flesh and blood and he will be your heir. And through him, you will have offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. It seems here that Abraham's uh, is looking for this son to give him anchor. You, you see that in verse 2. It says, what can you give me? What can you give me to make me sure that this will work? What can you give me to help me know, to help me have faith that you're for me? What, what can you give me to anchor my life? How about a son? Can you give me a son? God's already given him the anchor. Abraham just kind of overlooked it for a second. You see in 15 verse 1, God has promised what every human heart wants. Verse 1 says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. All of us have this existential angst that manifests itself as fear. But it comes from one of two places. We all have two great needs, two enormous needs. And God addresses them right here in this passage. When we are disconnected from God, when we don't make God our anchor, we feel at risk. We feel vulnerable. We feel, we feel adrift. And God says, I'm your shield. I'll be the one who protects you. I will be the one who is your rear guard, who stands guard over your life and over you. And then he promises us something incredible. I will be your very great reward. I am your great reward. I am the thing that will satisfy you. I am the greatest thing I can give you. I don't have anything better to give you than myself. And so I will give you myself. But Abraham doesn't yet believe this. And so Abraham asked for a son. And later he'll get a son. He's going to make a ton of mistakes on the way to getting this son. Many of you know the story. Abraham is going to give his wife away twice. And God is going to have to rescue her from being raped and sexually assaulted and exploited by a very powerful man like Pharaoh and another guy named Abimelech who was a very powerful man. Abraham just gives his wife away because he's afraid. He's unfaithful to God and to God's promises and he doesn't trust God to take care of him. And then later, uh, he will uh, think that God's fallen asleep on the job, that God's promised a son, but God hasn't done anything to do that. He and his wife Sarah are still barren, and so he takes a servant girl as his wife. He uh, becomes a, a, a bigamist, a polygamist. He takes a servant girl as his wife and has a son by her named Ishmael, and it severs his family, and it it embitters his wife, and he has to um, actually send one of his wives and children away in this heartbreaking thing because he makes a terrible and faithful thing. But God never leaves him or forsakes him. God never disowns him because God has chosen him from among the nations and said, I will bless you. And we're still trying to figure out what that great blessing is. And we see it in Genesis 22, which Annas read. God has given him what his heart most wanted, a son. And then what does God do? God asks it for him back. God says, I gave you a son, give it back. Give him back, sacrifice him on the mount that I'll show you. Sacrifice him on the mountain that I'll show you. And what does Abraham do? He does it. Why? Why does he give this son back? Why does he go up to, to slay his own son? God tells you, God says, now I know you fear the Lord because you did not withhold your one and only son from me. The one you love, Isaac. You didn't hold him back. You fear the Lord. What does God mean in that verse? 
He means you value me more than anything. You now know that I'm your great reward. That even your son Isaac is a signpost pointing to me that you love the giver more than you love the gifts. It took Abraham years to get here, 20 years to get here. When God calls him, he's about 80, he's in his 70s, right around 80. And then when he finally has a son, he's about 100 years old. And then Isaac grows up a little bit. It has taken decades for Abraham to get to this place where he values God above everything else. And it's in this moment that we now see why God makes him wait. Abraham, through these enormous storms where he has no son, where he's uh, politically disadvantaged, where um, his family is torn apart. God makes him wait because God knows that Abraham's heart will want to make the most of this son, will want to idolize this son more than he loves God. And so God won't give him the son until he's ready for the son. Friends, if God has been saying no to you lately, if you've been asking God for something, whether that's children or a new house or a new job, most often God is saying no because you're not ready for it yet. If God gave you that thing now, it would crush you. You would crush it. You would idolize it. You would use it to sever yourself from God. Remember, we started our book of Hebrew study with remembering that when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he did not take them the short way to the promised land because he knew if he took them the short way they would go back to Egypt that thing you've been asking God for and God keeps saying not yet you're not ready for it and if he gave it to you now you would either reject it or you'd idolize it and reject God and God loves you too much to let either of those things happen So here you have this man, Abraham, who values God above all else, even to the point of sacrificing his son. Because he's learned the greatest blessing God has to give you is a relationship with God. That he knows God intimately. He knows the character of God. He knows that even if Isaac dies, Hebrews 11 will tell us that Abraham knows God is faithful. And so if God has to raise Isaac from the dead, he trusts God can do that because he has come to understand the heart and the character of God. The God who doesn't disown when you fail, but the God who chases down, the God who disciplines and coaches up, the God who embraces and leads this way. He has come to value God more than anything in his life. And so he is free to be a blessing to the people around him. The first blessing that is the hope for your soul, the promise that you've inherited, is a right relationship with God. Just as Abraham had a right relationship with God by faith, you and I can have a right relationship with God by faith that values God more than anything else, that gives God a blank check like Abraham gave God a blank check when Abraham left his family and his, uh, his father in the land he knew and said, I'll go where you go, I'll do what you ask me to do. The first thing God wants to give you, the first hope, the first promise that he has made is communion with him, is knowledge of him. And the second that comes out of that one is the thing that's been repeated over and over again, but it gets repeated in Genesis 22, verse 18. It says this, And through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. Through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. There's a fascinating thing here in the scriptures that the Apostle Paul will point out. The word offspring 
is singular. Like through your offspring, through your son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul, looking in hindsight, in retrospect, is able to see that that fulfillment, the fulfillment of that promise, did not come in Isaac. It came in Jesus. Jesus, the one who guarantees us right relationship with God and guarantees us that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That God is going to make himself famous among all the nations. Do you ever stop and think about how ridiculous it is that you're a Christian? Like, do you ever just stop and think, wait, how in the world am I a Christian? I live thousands of miles away from where Jesus was born and died. I'm a different, um, more or less a different uh, he and I looked entirely different. We come from different backgrounds. He was Jewish. My ancestors are pagans. They worship stones and statues. Like how? How did he get across oceans and how did we get here? Why me? Because Christianity is the only pan-continental or uh, intercontinental, inter- interrelational, interracial religion on the planet. It, it's on every continent and in every race with the hope and the goal and the certainty that it's going to every nation. And you and I are part of that. What we can set our hope on is that we have a relationship with God and that God will use us to reach the nations. That God wants to use us to reach not just Cleveland, not just Oakland, but to reach the nations. And that doesn't mean that we have to bring the nations here. The goal is not to convene a crowd. The goal is to make disciples. The goal is not to have the biggest building, but to to make disciples who make disciples who spread out through all the ends of the earth. That we would be a people who point back to the hope set before us. And the reason we have this hope is laid out for us in Hebrews chapter 6. It's in the character of God. It's in the love of God. The love of God that condescends. And Hebrews is showing us this in a really unique way, a kind of Hebraic way, an old Jewish way. He says, think about this for a second. Why did God swear to Abraham? Why did he swear? Why did God have to swear? Like God cannot lie. God's promise should be enough. But God comes back and he adds an oath, a promise, a swear on top of it. Uh, We don't swear that much. Well, not intentionally. But when I was a kid, you used to like cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that kind of swear. What I'm saying is if I do not keep my word, you can do this to me. Um, you could say I swear on a stack of Bibles or I swear by all these holiest uh, phrases that still enter into our parlance. It's when um, I need you to believe me so bad that I invoke something higher than me. It is an admission that I am not inherently trustworthy. The minute I start swearing, you know that I am a liar. Because if I was truthful, I would never need to swear. Like if I was trustworthy, I would never have to make promises. I would just say yes or no. But as soon as I start to swear or make promises or I swear on anything, it's because I'm a liar. Maybe not right now. Essentially what I'm saying is, I know I lie a lot of times, but I promise you, right now I'm not lying. I know that you've tried to trust me other times and I failed you, but right now you can trust me. I'm not lying. I promise. Like I really, really, for sure promise. But does God ever have to do that? See, I know I lied to you last week, but this week, God's serious. No, so God doesn't need to swear, but he swears for your certainty and my certainty that God will rescue us and he will save the nations. And so he promises on an oath that we would have encouragement, that we would be greatly encouraged to grab the hope set before us. That hope has been secured in Jesus who has not just died for us, but risen for us and now reigns in heaven for us. You have an anchor. 
I was thinking about this sermon this weekend when I was on my boat. And when you set an anchor to get the anchor back up, do you know how you get an anchor back into your boat? Like you, you, you don't just like pull on it hard. You actually pull the boat over top of the anchor. You pull the boat to the anchor. The anchor doesn't move. You move to the anchor. Friends, I pray that you are pulling yourself towards Jesus. And when you fail, the anchor's still there. The anchor has not moved. But as you move towards Jesus, you will move towards the Holy of Holies into God's presence. Because He will hold us fast. Let's pray. God, we need an anchor. We need ballast. We need to know that you're at work in our lives and that through us you will bless other people. God, I pray that we would never content ourselves with just knowledge of you, but that we would always minister with you to the nations. Give us as a church a heart for the nations, a heart for those who are far off, who don't know you. Give us a heart for those who've given up on you and are running from you like Jonah. Give us a heart for people who've never heard the gospel, who've never heard it rightly, but who've never heard it, and those who've never heard it at all. On the other side of the world, in our own backyard, wherever they are, give us a heart for them so that we would do whatever it takes for them to know your goodness. We ask this trusting in your son, Jesus. Amen. Friends, not because we have to, but because we get to join God in his mission to remake the whole world. I invite you to offer God your tithes and his, his tithes and your offerings. Those worship God.